Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve sallallahu ta'ala ala seyyidil musalin. Ve alihi ve sahbihi ve barik ve sallam. All praise are due to Allah, Lord of the worlds. And peace and blessings be always and constantly showered upon our beloved Prophet Muhammad, his family, his companions, and all those who call to his way to the day of judgment. My beloved brothers and sisters, to our friends, to our viewers and listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The history of Islam really is the history of humanity. Because when we look at the word Islam or Istislam, we're talking about submission to the creator of the heavens and the earth in the concept of Tawheed, of the oneness. And that concept of monotheism has been shared by people of every nation, every tribe, all throughout the planet. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu uh, showed us that over 124,000 prophets and messengers came to every nation and every tribe. And after his time, because he was the last prophet, the, the, the Khatam al-Anbiya wal Mursaleen, he was the seal of the prophets and messengers. So the final message of the Quran had to continue and is continuing until the day of resurrection. And so the history after his time is different than the history of the Tawheed before his time. Because before the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, the messengers and prophets were sent to their tribes, their nations. But afterwards, it's to all nations. So therefore, uh, after the time of the Prophet, there's an international flavor to this. There is a time-based flavor to this. There is uh, a situation-based flavor to this. And so Islamic history is vast, but there are certain key pivotal moments which carved the destiny of Muslims and the people of the earth for hundreds of years. And we're looking at some of these pivotal moments. These are historical experiences of great significance. And Allah tells us in Surah Yusuf, the chapter of Joseph in the Qur'an, that um, in their signs, there are lessons for those who would reflect. And within these stories, there is Ibra. There is uh, deep thinking. And you could say that there are pivots so within these qasas is special points and one of the aspects of speciality is this pivot concept, the pivot concept. And that is a shift, uh, a sort of like turning the page. Some say it's like a fork of the road. It is a crucial event or a series of events that have an impact for a long period of time. And so we have been looking at, in the last few sessions, the Western side of Islam. Because the heartland of Islam in Arabia and Iraq and Syria and these surrounding areas and Turkey, and this is known by the vast majority of Muslims. But the Western side of Islam and that is North Africa, West Africa, 
that is Al-Andalus, which is now Portugal and Spain, is not so well known uh, to the Muslims around the world. And surprisingly enough, it is almost completely unknown to the Western people. And it's shocking to find out that the people of Portugal and the people of Spain have the least amount of information about what actually happened because it was systematically rooted out of their education system. And so this information is really um, a brilliant look. It is, it is shining information, not just for Muslims, but for all the people who want to know the true history of the earth. And when we look at Al-Andalus and we recognize the fact that uh, Abdurrahman al-Dakhil, the great uh, Saka Quraysh, the great Khalifa, or the great Amir, the Sultan, he was really the key pivot linchpin that really enabled the Muslims who had come across the Bering Straits, they had entered Gibraltar, and they defeated the Visigoths, who were torturing and punishing the people in the name of Trinitarianism, that Abdurrahman uh, I, Abdurrahman Saka, Saka Quraysh, he was able to bring it together, to consolidate it. And at the same time, he was able to add impetus uh, and new direction to the uh, Muslim community there uh, in Al-Andalus. And again, Al-Andalus stands for uh, Andalusia, which is Vandalusia, which is the land of the Vandals. And that is the land that we now know as Spain uh, and also Portugal because they were not divided up uh, in the way that we divided up today. And so with this beginning, with this pace that was set by uh, Abdurrahman al-Dakhil, that first great uh, leader from the Umayyads, he, he gave direction, he, he pushed forward, he set models of the way that a leader should govern. He also had um, inclusion, that he included people of different nationalities and different religions. Upward mobility was there for everybody, reading, writing, math. It was there for all children, regardless of whether you were a Muslim, Christian, or a Jew. And so that set a very heavy pace. And his predecessors were able to continue to a great extent uh, what their great-great-grandfather had begun. And the greatest of all of the successors of Abdurrahman al-Awwal, the first, al-Dakhil, was Abdurrahman al-Nasir al So this was the third Abdurrahman. And he's known as al-Nasir al He is the one who gave victory to the religion of Allah. And uh, Abdurrahman, the Sultan, uh, actually declared Khilafat. And that was a very important move. And he had to bring some sort of proof of, of his power. You, you don't just stand up and say, I'm the Khalifa. This is what mad people do. Or this is what people who are you know, brought in as agent provocateurs uh, have done historically. But the real Khalifa is one who has sulta, who has real authority in the land, who is uh, God-fearing, uh, who is respected by the people, 
uh, and, and, and that is the one who stands in the place of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so he worked on and, and developed Medina to Zahra. And this was one of the wonders of the world. And again, if you look at this picture, you will see um, as, as the green, this is an archaeological site uh, in Spain, in Cordoba, which was the capital that was established by uh, Abdurrahman. And um, you'll see as the line goes out and you see the green and then you see the patch of, of brown and then the light green. And there, right in back of that is a road. So they say that this is probably the extent of uh, this Medina to Zahra. The rest of it's under the ground. And um, with archaeology and with science, um, you people were able to uh, excavate uh, this amazing ruins, and they're still finding more. And there's more actually uh, as you go down the road. This was one of the wonders of the world, and it was something that the leaders and religious people from different parts of Europe would make a type of pilgrimage to this place. They would pay obeisance um, to the Khalifa at this place, and that's very interesting because they're not visiting the Khalifa going east. See, normally we think of Islam and Muslims are east of Europe. But in this case, in the case of France, Germany, um, other major states in Europe, uh, it's east. Sometimes it's like southeast. Sometimes it's directly east. Uh, uh, but no, but it's actually west. Okay, so this is it. The western Khilafat. And um, his authority over the lands of the Malikia, of one of the great schools of thought, North Africa and West Africa, and the influence that the Umayyads uh, had made this a valid Khilafat because the Abbasids were dying at this point. They were going down. They had no authority. They only had symbolic authority. The Shia, the Ismailis, uh, called the Fatimids, they uh, announced their own Shiite uh, Khilafat in Tunisia and then in Egypt. Uh, but this was only accepted by a minority of the Muslims. And so the vast majority were looking um, either to Baghdad, to the Abbasids, or they were looking uh, to uh, Cordoba, uh, to the Umayyad uh, Khalifa. And so this was an amazing achievement. And the successes of Abdurrahman, they continued uh, with his work. And again, that, that symbol, which now uh, you know we see we, and we find in many of the buildings, uh, what's left of the buildings there in Al-Andalus, there is nothing that can conquer you uh, except Allah. And so it reached the point where uh, Medina, uh, Cordoba, Cordoba, it was one of the largest cities, if not the largest, on earth at the time. 200,000 houses, 600 masjids, 900 public baths, 50 hospitals. This is an amazing achievement uh, that the Muslims were able to do. Uh, something which really astounded people who, who, who would actually go. They couldn't believe that this is actually the planet Earth because lights uh, are there, uh, running water. You could even go like 10 miles and the streets are lit and people are living together in harmony. 
Jews, Christians, Muslims, for the most part. And um, it, it, is, it is the most industrious part of Europe. Uh, actually, you could say that the Renaissance uh, of Europe happened in this area. And, and that Renaissance, as we know, because of the colonial period, impacted the whole world. Uh, and so uh, it's amazing. And you could even say, when you look at uh, the, the objective facts, that Cordoba, it was far ahead of even London and Paris, the two great cities of Europe. 700 years it took them to reach this level in terms of the, the, the plumbing, in terms of the science, the, the hygiene, in terms of the industriousness, the justice, uh, 700 years. And even some of the things that they reach could never be reached in Europe uh, up until today. So that is the great achievement. So it, it is rose to a great height. And Abdurrahman on Nasir, and, and you can see him looking. Uh, he's in the west and he's looking east. Right, so this is how his Khilafat uh, actually sat in the world. And following the rules of uh, a few of his uh, predecessors, his wazir, Muhammad ibn Amir, who was known as Al-Mansur, he took over the authority because there was some discord that started to come in. And we have to recognize that you know, after a hundred years, uh, you, you will start to see Ibn Khaldun's uh, theory coming in of the cyclical nature uh, of political rule. And so there was some differences between the Umayyad dynasty, the Yemenis, uh, the Amazigh or the Berber people, African people, um, the non-Arabs versus the Arabs. These tribalisms and human weakness started to come in. So Al-Mansur took over and he strengthened uh, the rule within the society. But he was harsh. In a way, he was harsh. And he, beat, he, he, he made or he built uh, Medina to Zahira. So, so this is now um, a Zahira, and this is to rival Medina to Zahra. So now you can see some weakness starting to come in. And this is where material things start to impact. And most human beings can't handle uh, too much materials. And so it was there in Al-Andalus because they reached really um, the pinnacle uh, in uh, civilization. Um, they were so wealthy. They were not like people from other parts of the world. Uh, they had high culture. They were like making culture uh, for Europe and for other parts of the Muslim world. At the same time, they started to get weak. And this weakness came, three key issues uh, start to come in. And the, these are important to understand the history of uh, Islam in Al-Andalus. And, and you could apply these to other parts uh, of the Muslim world uh, as well. Number one, Hayat These are material things. The Prophet ﷺ said in authentic hadith, Inna li kulli umma fitna wa fitna to ummati al-mal. Every nation has a trial and a test. And the trial and test of my nation is wealth. Okay, so it's usually too much or too little. It's a fitna. And with Al-Andalus, tribute was pouring in uh, from all over the world. 
Secondly, we find divisions, argumentation starting to come in, where people start to argue with each other. They split hairs. They start breaking into ethnic groups. And the danger really comes when these divisions reach the point of treachery and complete disunity. So, so when that disunity comes in to break up the one line uh, of Islam, then uh, the forces of evil start to come in. And again, this happens from not externally first. It's coming inside. So it's really inside out. The way many history books would write it, especially like in Spain, they say the Moors, and Moors is from Moros, meaning people of color in Latin, that the Moors invaded Spain, took over and ruled for a little while, and then the Reconquista, the Reconquest. The Catholic uh, kings and queens reunited themselves and they took over uh, in Spain and Portugal. This is how they, how they would say it. Reality is, we're talking about uh, a rule of 781 years plus. So this is a big part of European history, of world history, and Islamic history. And, and what is so important about Al-Andalus is that you can see the changes come about. You can see the rise and the fall. You can see the pivots that actually happen to enable it to rise back up. Then corruption sets in, they fall, pivot, rise back up. And so this major move that the Umayyads made uh, and then uh, Al-Mansur started to deteriorate. And the worst thing that could happen is when one emir of a section turns against his brother. Then the Trinitarians with the Red Cross waiting, and they had taken over a, a, a northern section of Spain called Leon, especially in the high mountains of this uh, province. And uh, this craggy area, when the Muslims first took over Al-Andalus, and what was left of the forces of Roderick uh, took shelter in this high mountains, it was so craggy and the weather was so terrible, they just left it alone because it's like it doesn't exist. But historians say if they had known what would come out of that mountains, they should have gone over there and they should have finished the conquest. So it is from Lyon, from the north, also from France, uh, that the reconquista, uh, that the unity of the Christian Trinitarian forces starts to come back and it starts to move in and it starts to take its toll uh, section by section. And so what would happen is that one emir now, being treacherous to his brother, he makes an alliance with the Christians against another Muslim. Now think about this. The Christian then Trinitarian comes in and, and, and defeats um, the other Muslim and then the first one too. And look at the Muslim world today. And you can see the relevance of this. You see what happens when treachery comes in and we don't respect differences amongst ourselves and we start turning on uh, each other. Uh, this starts to bring decline.
And so around 1031, uh, and this is an approximation of what had happened with the Muslims losing their land. Okay, in the pink color there, uh, that is the Christian kingdoms, and the green uh, is the lands of Islam. And so you can see there's a big chunk of what they had ruled before. It was lost. And um, this Muluk al-Tawaif, this Ta'ifa kingdoms, uh, as, as many would put it, um, they start to develop. And this is where you can see the different places. Um, each one has got an Amir. And that Amir thinks he's Amir and what we need. So he thinks he's the ruler because there's no strong central force really to unite all of the lands. Uh, things have gotten weakened and it starts to go down in this Ta'ifa force. And so this now led to the entrance of Alfonso VI. And Alfonso VI uh, succeeds in uniting the Christian forces and he took over Leon, that northern area, of course, and then he moved into Portugal. So he moved to the coastal region, and he, he was able to conquer uh, Portugal out of the Burtakal. And then he gathered his forces, and he conquered Toledo, Toledo. And the conquest of Toledo, according to the uh, Muslim historians uh, in Al-Andalus, it was like Yom Qiyamah. It was like Qiyamah. Because this was the original capital of uh, Andalusia. It was probably the most um, fortified area. And if you get a chance to go to Toledo when you visit Spain, uh, you can still see the fortifications because it's like a part of it's on a hill. And so you literally have to rise this hill. And then there's a huge uh, set of walls that is above this hill going down. And, and so it is naturally fortified by these huge walls and, and these natural uh, protections. It also has water. Uh, it has supplies. And so when they took Toledo, uh, this was a tremendous loss uh, for the Muslims. And um, he considered himself uh, to be uh, the, the, the emperor of all the Christian lands in Spain. And he threatened the city of Seville. And you can see that that's considerably south of Toledo. So he's going deep down into the land. You see, he sort of side skirts Cordoba because Cordoba is still well fortified and the armies are there. He, 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 wants, he side skirts that and he's got forces coming out of Portugal, which is close to Seville. And then he uh, lays siege to Seville, okay? And um, this was a, a terrible situation. And um, the, this siege lasted for a period of time. And the, the, the historians who, who are writing about um, the, the, the siege of Seville, um, they write, and you can even see this in books like Ibn Kathir and uh, other Islamic sources, that Alfonso the uh, Sixth, he writes a demeaning, um, insulting letter uh, to the leader of Seville, Al-Mu'tamid Billah, 
And he, he writes to him in words, and he says, uh, the most dangerous thing, the most annoying thing uh, for me uh, during the siege is your flies. There's too many flies. You see the insult, right? Your soldiers, you're not annoying, but it's the flies that are getting to us. And so the Ibn Kathir writes that Al-Mu'tamid took the letter and he wrote one sentence on the back. Now, this is after a long siege, years. He writes one sentence on the back where, where uh, Al-Mu'tamid says, Wallahi, la illam tarja, if you do not return, la urawihanna laka bi mirwaha min al-murabitin. He said, by Allah, if you do not return, break the siege, I will fan you with a fan of the Murabitun. Now, you see how it goes. This is sarcasm coming back. You, you're afraid of flies? I'll send you a fan, but that fan will be Al-Murabitun. The historians write, that when Alfonso saw this one sentence, he shouted to his generals, lift the siege, retreat. And they retreated. And the question is, what is in this sentence that would make the, the so-called emperor of Spain, emperor of Portugal, who has a big army, he's surrounding the place, what would make him lift the siege with one sentence, um, it happened. And we'll explore that later, al-Murabitun. So this gave some breathing space um, to the Muslims, and so they immediately called uh, a council of uh, the 22 Amirs. Now think about um, the Rabatat al-Alam al-Islami, the World Muslim League, and now Organization of Islamic Conference. So you think about the United Nations of the Muslims. So in this particular area, they called this council. And in the council came the political leaders, the emirs. Many of them didn't even like each other. But there is approximately 22. There's different opinions about the numbers. But approximately 22. There was also um, the leader, Al-Mu'tamid himself of Seville, who called the conference. And there were the ulama. The ulama... The, the scholars, they said, resist. We have to resist the advance uh, of the Trinitarians. And if we cannot resist, then we should make hijrah. We should migrate. Migrate south, go to other lands. But do not surrender. The emirs, in the diplomatic fashion, which is similar to today, the emirs said, well, everybody has got a price. So let's buy them out. If this bakshish, if, if we if we rishwa. So if, if we pay them off, give them enough gold, dancing girls, whatever they want, they will keep them satisfied and that should be okay. Al-Murtamid, he didn't like this. And he threatened to bring in the Murabitun. And the impact that this group had had on Alfonso was amazing. Al-Mu'tamid uh, thought within himself, it's probably a good idea. 
a big argument ensued. And they said, no, because this group is not from Al-Andalus. And these are Bedouin people. This is not the right uh, group to, to bring. Here, because this siege is still lurking, because they're losing the lands, this is your pivotal moment. If they did not have a solution, Alfonso would return. The other forces would return. They would take over. If they try to bribe, the bribe would only last for so long. Because that's the way bribes are. It wouldn't last. So there had to be a decisive move, a decisive set of events that stops the halt of the Christians, reinvigorates uh, the Muslim ummah, and has this lasting impact. So this is our pivotal moment that is here. And you know the basis of this moment is a statement made by Al-Murtamid Billah, where he said in 1086, uh, it is better to be a camel driver than a swine herd. Now, I want you to think about that within yourself. What do you think he meant by that? It is better to be a camel driver than a swine herd. If you know the answer, put it into the notes so we can go back and see if anybody gets this right. Okay, and so this was a very famous statement. He said, I called this conference, and I am the emir, you know, of the Umarah, and I would rather be a camel driver than a swineherd. What he meant was, I'm going to bring in the Murabitu. So this is the decisive, pivotal moment. But the question is, who are the Murabitun? Why would they put so much fear into the hearts of Alfonso VI, the emperor of Portugal and Spain? Who is this group that would do that? It's not the Khalifa in Baghdad. It's not the Shiite Fatimids. We have to go back 40 years to 1048 uh, to understand what is happening now. You remember North Africa, the principal inhabitants were Amazigh. They were the Berbers. And they were the major tribes of Al-Judala and, uh, uh, and the Lamtuna. So these are two tribes under a big umbrella called Sanhaja. Okay, so the Sanhaja Berbers, they are the ones who, um, for the most part, were controlling the areas. They take you across the desert. And, and that was very important because, as we have learned, uh, south of the desert was the Niger River and one of the greatest gold deposits in the world. And so whoever controlled this trade was actually controlling a fabulous amount of riches. And so it was the Sanhaja, it was the Amazigh. They are the ones who would take you across. And so the Amazigh, because they're Bedouin types, and the Bedouins, when they're active and involved, they can be a fighting force. But because of this uh, activity, um, they, they can make trouble too because they're active and they're not tied down like the working class or like the bourgeois class. If you look at classes, no. They move back and forth and they're really into materials. Uh, but then they can leave all the materials as well. So corruption starts to set in into the Lamtuna and the Judala. 
And one of the leaders of the Judala, Yahya ibn Ibrahim uh, al-Judali, uh, rahimahullah, he wanted to save his people. And a visionary leader, he wanted to take shura. So, of course, the, the greatest shura you can take or consultation uh, is to go uh, to the blessed cities of Mecca and Medina. So he made his pilgrimage uh, at that time. And when he returned, he returned to the city of Qairawan. Now remember the importance of Qairawan. That's in present-day Tunisia. That was the western capital of Islam. That is where Sahnun uh, put together al-Mudawwana al-Kubra. These are the writings of Imam Malik. It's where the Maliki Madhab uh, really got consolidated. And um, and so he, he he took the advice of the ulama and Abu Imran uh, al-Fassi, um, probably the greatest of the fuqaha uh, at the time living there in Qaydawan. He said, I will send you to a person who will give you the inspiration uh, and will help your people. And that is uh, Siri Abdullah ibn Yasin. Now, these are very important names, and, and people who do not live in North Africa uh, or West Africa or Andalus, you might not be aware of these names, uh, but these are really, really important names. And so Abdullah ibn Yasin was a great activist scholar. He was a revivalist, and uh, he was living in the Sus region of present-day Morocco, and he took on the challenge to go amongst the uh, uh, Jadala people. And again, this is your map uh, showing uh, North Africa. and You, you can see the, the, the green on the top. Okay, so this is your lands that were conquered early. Uh, then you have the great Sahara Desert. Uh, this is where the, the trade goes across that desert. And, and so Abdullah ibn Yasin, uh, then, uh, he went to the Lamtuna. He went to the Judala. And he, he, he taught them. And uh, he stayed for a period of time. But in, in that negative nature of the Bedouins, they didn't want to be restricted by Sharia. Okay, And so they fought against Abdullahi to the point where Yahya had to tell him, leave. If you don't leave, these people are going to take your life. But Abdullahi ibn Yasin, he's a revivalist. And he heard that there were people below the desert, who were interested in Islam. There were some who had embraced Islam. There were great empires there. And, and within this empires, uh, there, there was this possibility. It's, it's spreading now. So he went south. And he went south. Uh, he's by himself and just a few of his followers. And he set up a camp. Um, and they called this camp Rabat. And so this Rabat uh, was where they would teach the Quran and the Sunnah. They also teach methods of dawah um, and uh, ways of defending yourself. You could say they're like Muslim samurais who are involved in dawah. Uh, and so his group began to uh, expand. And some of the people came south from the Lamtuna uh, and the Judala. There were also African people from Senegal and what is now Gambia and Mali and these regions there, um, they started to go uh, with him as well. And so a small group 
of just five, ten followers, and if just a few tenths, actually turned into about twelve thousand. And so this is where the name Morabitun come from, Ribat. So the Ribat is your um, your your encampment, right? It is it is um, how you tie up things, right? It, it is your base of operations. So the Morabitun are the people of the Ribat. So the people who came out of these Islamic encampments, they were people of Dawah, calling to the good and forbidding evil. Uh, this is the basis of the Morabitun. And they started to spread Islam and call to the good and forbid uh, evil. And unfortunately, after a period of time, Abdullahi was martyred. He became Shaheed. Um, but the Morabitun were now expanding, and um, they chose as their leader uh, Sidi Abu Bakr ibn Umar, rahimahullah. This is another name, which is not so well known, but it should be written in the annals of Islamic history. Everybody should be studying this person as a leader. Tireless leader. And you can see by the drawings that came of him, uh, he's dark-skinned person as well, what you would call an African today, uh, in terms of features. Um, he's one of the Berbers, because there are you know, Berber, African Berbers, there are middle range, there are white-looking Berbers, there's different nations within the Amazigh people. So Abu Bakr ibn Umar, um, he bases himself in Marrakesh. And, and that really was the basis of Morocco itself. Uh, and it was the seat of the Murabitu and the famous Kutubiya uh, minaret that is there. If you get a chance to go to Morocco, don't miss Marrakesh. You have to go there because uh, it has probably the best history um, and culture. Fez, of course, is up there as well. But I love Marrakesh uh, because there's so much life that is there. Now, what is important about Abu Bakr ibn Umar is that he, um, he hears about the people in the south who are accepting Islam. Remember what Abdullah ibn Yasin had found. And so he said, I'm going to dedicate my life to Dawah. And I will give the leadership over to Sidi Yusuf ibn Tashfin, rahimahullah. This is around 1061. So this is another very important person whose name should go down in the annals of history. If you're from Morocco, West Africa, North Africa, then you'll know about Yusuf ibn Tashfin. Uh, but in other parts of the world, people may not be so familiar with him. Extremely important person, tireless leader. They say it in his 70s, you know, he could even run and jump on top of his horse or his camel. Uh, he led his troop in a tireless way. And uh, after a period of time uh, of struggling, um, he was able to amass 100,000 horsemen. Now, this is Al-Murabitun. Now, think about this group here. Look at the picture of your Muslim uh, uh, you know, Mujahid that is there. Think about a hundred thousand of them on horseback. Now you know what Alfonso thought when he saw in the letter that if you do not leave, I will fan you with a fan of the Murabitun. It's pronounced Al Murabitin, you know, and when it's Majrur, it's in a sentence, but it's Al Murabitun, you know, when it stands by itself. That's what Alfonso saw. And that's why he said immediately, break the siege. It's over. 
Uh, so these are the Murabitun. And Yusuf ibn Tashfin, Rahimahullah, he traveled throughout the land. Uh, he was able to bring people from Senegal region, you know, from the south to join. Uh, he was able to take over what is now uh, Mali and um, Morocco, Spanish Sahara, um, Algeria, Tunisia, uh, all the way to the borders of Egypt. And then so that huge area was controlled by the Murabitun. And what was beautiful about the Murabitun is that even though they had 100,000 horsemen, I'm not talking about people on foot. They could put 100,000 horsemen into the field, which could probably defeat any army in the Muslim world at, the, at that point in time. Um, he, he still said, when you make the Jum'ah, that you should read the Jum'ah khutbah in the name of the Khalifa in Baghdad. We will respect the Abbasids. See, so he did not want to start another uh, Khilafat. He said, no, uh, we, I'm not Amir al-Mu'mineen. Uh, we will call ourselves Amir al-Muslimin. See, so this is humility. This is amazing. And, and this is what we should remember about the Murabitun. Sidi Abu Bakr um, also, at one point, he came back from the south to Marrakesh and he found Yusuf ibn Tashfin with 100,000 uh, riders uh, with great respect. But he's the emir, right? Remember, Abu Bakr ibn Umar, he's the emir, the original emir. So now you got two emirs. Although he gave authority to Yusuf, what would happen? Unfortunately, in many of our communities today, they start fighting each other. So one masjid becomes two, and then two become four, and then four become eight, right? So you see the divisions that come in. That's why the example of the Murabitun is so important to study. This is the Ibra, right? These are the lessons that you take. This is the moment that is happening. This is the force that is, that is changing uh, Islamic history in that region, and, and that we should embrace and put it into practice in our lives today. Al-Murabitun. And the beautiful thing about Sidi Abu Bakr, when he came back and he saw the authority of, 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 of uh, Sidi Yusuf, he said, take the leadership, and I will return to the south, and I will give dawah for the rest of my life. And it is reported that the Murabitun traveled across West Africa, all the way to Central Africa. Hundreds and thousands of people embracing Islam on their hands. And contrary to the Orientalist history who say Al-Muravid, they say the Al-Muravids conquered the kingdom of Ghana. Right? So that's what they say. Al-Muravid meaning Al-Murabitun. But um, some European historians even proved this, Conrad and Fisher, in, in an article that they wrote, they said it was the conquest that never was, that the Murabitun did not conquer Ghana because the king was still in place. What they did was they enriched it, they empowered it, and they gave dawah to the people, and they continued on. So this is the, the Murabitun um, group, amazing example. Getting back to the pivotal moment, the pivotal moment, Al-Mu'tamid. 
Remember, he said, I'd rather be a camel driver than a swine herd. See what he's saying? I would rather take care of the Murabitun's camels than take care of the Trinitarian Christian's pigs. You see the difference in the two. And that's what our leaders need to think about today when they make the alliances that they make and the treachery of the things that go on. So this moment that happens, it, 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 it comes about. And in 1086, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, Rahimahullah, and the Warabitun, they went north and they defeated the Trinitarians. They pushed them back over the borders. They secured the borders of Islam. Now, the, the Andalusians, because they're afraid of these people now, because the Andalusians are living high culture. They've got like five course meals. You know how they start off with their nice um, salads and their juice, their juices, you know, and then they go on to, you know, their starters. You have your samosas today. You know, then they go on to their main meal and then they have their dessert. You see, they have courses. That's what they introduced this to Europe. Europeans didn't have this before because Roman culture is gone. So they introduced this type of eating that Europeans look down on everybody uh, because they do it. It was Muslims who taught them how to eat, how to wash your hands. And the Murabitun, they're serious. And, and they, when they describe Yusuf ibn Tashfin, every day they ate oatmeal and milk and dates. That was their meal. Then get a little meat, fine. A little bread, fine. But they can survive with oatmeal and the milk from their animals and some dates. So you can carry this with you, right? Uh, and so the Andalusians who had become corrupted and they were very high class now, they made an agreement with Yusuf ibn Tashfin. If you defeat the Christians, inshallah, return to North Africa. And according to the agreement, Yusuf returned. Okay? That's amazing. Because many people would not hold to the agreement. But after a short period of time, in 1088, they called him back again. We're weak again. And see, Yusuf went back again, sent the forces. They went back. They pushed back the Trinitarians, secured the borders of Islam. And they returned. Two years later, they're calling him back again. But this time, Ibn Tashfin said to his generals, check the Andalusians out. If they cannot secure their own borders, take everything. And we're going to establish Islam ourselves. And, 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 and that's the way it happened. The Andalusians were corrupted and they had lost their strength, their, their iman was weak. And so the Murabitun took over uh, the whole region there. And this became a huge, powerful state. Think about how powerful they were. They were controlling much of North Africa up into Egypt, down into West Africa, most of Al Andalus. And that is the reason why in these regions there, the Maliki school of thought is predominant. 
you find it's in most of the places like 100%. That was the Malachia. And you'll even see in the food uh, that people eat, even in some of the clothing, uh, they, you know, jalabia type things and, you know, their shoes and, you know, whatnot. You'll see it in the culture because it was the Murabitun that really uh, universalized uh, this North African culture. Uh, and of course, the, the Andalusians gave it sophistication in terms of you see now the sophisticated clothes of Morocco, right? This is the Andalusians here uh, who, who brought in uh, a lot of that sophisticated culture. And so um, they took over, and now the lands um, look something like this. You can see the reddish, pinkish uh, area there. Uh, that's the Christian Trinitarian lands. And Al, Al Murabitun, um, they call them Al Moravids, you know, in, in English. Uh, the green is their area. So they're still controlling a good half of the country. They still have Cordoba, Granada, Seville, Valencia. And even they were able to take back Lisbon, which is a major port uh, on the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Murcia uh, is there. So they still have um, much of the of bulk of, of the major cities. Uh, that are there in uh, Andalusia. Uh, and so uh, this was the territory around uh, 1100 uh, there, but Ibn Khaldun's um, understanding, it, it came in again. And, 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 and this is the cycle that can happen unless there's constant revival that is going on, Islamic revival, unless that is happening constantly, then corruption comes in, especially like third, fourth generation. Maybe they are born in a palace instead of riding a camel or a horse. And so the corruption sets in, you know, and um, that that same, the, the three fitness come in, you know, and that is the wealth of this world, the arguing and disputing, and then the divisions, the breakup, the divisions that lead to the breakup of the ummah. Um, that came in and you know it caused um, another downfall. Okay, so it, it had reached a, a high point, one of the highest, the highest point of an Andalus, that's around the year 1000. It started to go down, but there was a, a, a pivot, a pivotal point uh, with the Murabitun uh, coming in 1086, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, Rahimahullah and reviving Islam, you know, and then this set the pace and continued on, uh, and Muslims were able to stay uh, in this part of Al-Andalus, and um, then they had to go south uh, to the Granada section, uh, and they stayed there for 250 years, more, until they reached 1492 plus uh, of the rule there. And Al-Andalus um, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing to, you know, to study. Study this history. Because you can see the rise and the fall. Because after the Murabitun, there's another group, Al-Muwahidun. They now, after Murabitun started going down, Muwahidun brought it back up. You see? So this, this rise and fall. But that pivotal moment that we want to look at, uh, which I believe ranks as one of the great moments and great movements in Islamic history that all Muslims should actually be studying, especially today. <coughs> and that is the entrance of the Murabitun. 
And I want to, again, uh, leave you with some suggestions for reading, because that's the natural question that is asked. So Ahmed Thompson and uh, Muhammad Attar Rahman, they wrote a book called For Christ's Sake. This is the, the Taha Publishers. Okay, you can get these online. And also Ahmed Thompson, who writes um, the work Islam and Andalus. You, you should be able to get it online. Excellent book. And then Michael Barry. So this is a non-Muslim, but excellent work. Uh, homage to Al-Andalus, The Rise and Fall of Islamic Spain. So these are some, there's a lot of other books that you can get. I want to give you solid sources, you know, to take out all the propaganda and the Islamophobia, you know, to give you some, you know, basic understanding. And this is the, the positive and the negative, because we have to write about negative too, right? The rise and fall of Islam. Uh, Al-Jazairi, he has a number of books, but The Golden Age uh, and Decline of Islamic Civilization. You can get that online as well. Excellent book. Uh, Firas al-Khatib, um, he has lost Islamic history. And I have an e-book. Um, you can get it from Al-Maghrib Institute, or you can get it from, uh, if you write into me, uh, at um, either my Facebook page or hakeemquick.com is my website. Or you could write into um, Islam.ca and ask for the link to the ebook behind the vault. And tonight, if you haven't already, um, the documentary uh, film done by a Christian, Bethany Hughes, When the Moors Ruled in Europe. This is an excellent piece. Everybody should look at this. Not because it's the most authentic, but because... We need this sometimes because we're so brainwashed. So this is a European woman, a journalist, who is actually bringing out uh, the truth. And that's excellently done, uh, researched, on the spot. She's traveling through. You get to see, you know, parts of Al-Andalus and some amazing uh, uh, parts of history uh, that is there uh, as well. And... Um, so I'll leave this on the screen now, and I may come back to it. And uh, so we want to um, to see if there are any questions uh, that anybody had. And uh, I'll just go uh, to the question points. And let's see if there's any questions. I don't know if uh, Brother Mahmoon is there. You found any questions that are there? But um, I'm not seeing any questions here. Yeah. So, so um, again, this is uh, very important uh, to understand the rise and fall uh, of Islamic civilization, and also to to understand some of the pivotal points. And uh, we've looked at a few of the pivotal points. And if there's enough demand, um, we could even do a further series uh, looking at key pivotal points uh, in Islamic history. Um, I think that's, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, subject. And uh, we'll 
study this to see you know what is relevant uh, but those who are online you, you can write in and you can make suggestions uh, to the Islamic Institute of Toronto uh, at uh, islam.ca um, to to come online uh, and, and to see and, and to give us an understanding of uh, what you'd like to see uh, in the coming uh, semester inshallah and so uh, this is the final point you know of my uh, series, uh, this mini-series uh, that we did, and I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would uh, accept um, this work that we've done, and would um, any mistakes they are mind, and I ask Allah to forgive me, and if you learn something that is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we pray that Allah would give us ibrah, give us that lesson and our Muslim leaders today oh Allah, give them guidance at this point in time so they can have the same humility of al-murabitun and we ask Allah uh, constantly to bless our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Al-As inna l-insana la fi khus. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa amilu salihat. Wa tawasu bil-haq wa tawasu bil-sabah. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi wa barak wa sallam. Wa akhada da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته